Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we ask now that you'd be with your people everywhere. But especially we pray that you be with your congregations, with your loved ones. Help us, Lord, to understand your word, to have our lives framed by it. Enable us to walk by faith. Give us wisdom, Lord. May we walk by the understanding of your word. May we be drawn by the light of who you are, by the beauty of your character, by your holiness. And may we be able to embrace the love that you have extended to us, the wonderful grace that we have so freely given as a gift in Christ. All of our safety so freely given to us, our standing and righteousness, a free gift, our, our enabling of your spirit to help us to to sever ourselves from sin. We want to thank you, Lord. So now I ask that you'd open my mouth and I'd pray, Lord, that you would also open the ears of those who hear. Give us this grace, we pray in the Lord's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I've been going through some of the Psalms and I'll continue to do that until, uh, until I'm led to do something different. This Psalm tonight is a very special Psalm, Psalm number 14. I would like to read it to you and let you know that uh, this is a, a psalm that's very famous. People have preached on this psalm many, many times. Uh, you may have even heard this and may have uh, committed it to, to memory. But let's read verses 1 through 7 verse of, of Psalm number 14. This is to the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable thing, deeds. Uh, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evil doers who eat up my people as though they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. They are <clears throat> they uh, there they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is a famous song because it identifies or addresses the belief that there is no God, atheism, a denial of God's existence. But there is something that's direct in that one statement that helps us to understand atheism a little bit better than, than just denying that there is a God. It says that the wicked heart will lead a person to suppress the facts that prove undeniably that there is a God and that we are accountable to him. And so the matter of atheism has to do not just with the mind, but with the heart. Now this particular psalm, I've listened to several people and read several people and tried to get many ideas that I might give you something of value but there is a one by uh, a man by the name of Phil Johnson. I thought he did a fairly good job on this. 
And he said that there's two different kinds of atheism in this world. He says there is a theoretical atheism, and I don't mean like there's a theory about it. No, it, it's, a little, it's a little like when my daughter would tell me that she's teaching the theory of music. And of course, I would say, oh, is that still a theory? I thought they proved that. But the idea of the theory of music has to do with the elements of it and how things work in it. And uh, the term theoretical atheism has to do with atheism that people reason in their mind and then they come to the conclusion and that's what they espouse. They espouse in their mind that they have come to a conclusion that there is no God. But Phil Johnson said something like this. He said, there is theoretical atheism, but there is also practical atheism. Practical atheism. And that is the atheism that people perform. That is, they may even believe that there is a God, or they may believe in something that, well, I don't know, like agnosticism. But whether they believe or do not believe in a God, they live as though there is no God. And that's a practical atheism. A little bit like theology, would be, oh, I'm taking a theology course. Another man would say, well, I'm taking practical theology. And of course, I didn't know there was impractical theology. I thought it was all practical. But the idea that you put the word practical in front of it means that this is how it is practiced. This is how we perform it. So simply espousing that there is no God can really just say to a person, well, this is how I want to be seen by others. This is what I'm going to say. This is what I've come to some type of conclusion. But the fact of the matter is this. How does a person live? You'll see whether they are an atheist or not. You'll see that there is more practical atheism in this world than there is theoretical atheism. I like what, jo what um, James Boyce did with this, and so I took his outline from his book, a very good book. I recommend it. He has a three-volume uh, uh, set on, on, on the Psalms. They're very good. And he put this into four different stanzas as a song that's supposed to be sung. And so, as a song to be sung, it has four verses, but the first verse contains only the first verse. That's one verse. Now, the second verse contains two verses, verses two and three. The third verse contains three verses, four, five, and six. And then the last verse, again, contains one verse. And so it's divided like this. The first verse tells us that the fool speaks about God. That's verse number one. That is the first, not, not just the verse in the scriptures, but the verse of the hymn that's being sung. The fool speaks about God. The second verse is God speaks about the fool. And then the third verse is the way of the fool. And then the last verse, which is only verse number seven in the scripture, the calm hope of deliverance. And so, number one, let me go through that again. The fool speaks about God. There is no God. And then God speaks about the fool. You have, I've looked to see if there was any that understood. There's not one. And the way of the fool. He is afraid of things that aren't even there. He lives his life in fear. And then the calm deliverance. Oh, for the day when God will come and bring us back. And God will come and deliver us. So this is, a, this is the simple outline of Psalm number 14. I'd like to let you know that from the get-go, this particular song has another psalm that's almost identical to it, Psalm 53. And if you have your scriptures, go ahead and turn to Psalm 53. Psalm 53 is unique in that if you read it, you may thought, well, I read this already. I, I read this, and oh, it's in Psalm number 14. But there are some very 
subtle, unique differences between Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Just go ahead and glance at it. I won't read it to you, but you'll see. Ah, oh, that's what he just read, isn't it? I think you'll notice that um, it says in, I believe, let's see, verse number, find it right here. Verse number two. In Psalm 14, it says, The Lord looked down from heaven on the children of men. But doesn't that psalm say, And God looked down? There's a little bit of a difference there, isn't there? And so we'll see that these subtle differences does have a way of finding its way into uh, the epistle of, of, of the Romans by Paul when he begins to have a, uh, a real clear argument about the total depravity of man. And he's comparing, well, is it better to be a Jew or better or should we be a Gentile? And we'll notice that one of these Psalms addresses the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah, Yahweh. But the other one is Elohim, God. Or as shall we say, God says to everyone, whether they are his covenant people or anyone in the world, he looks down upon the earth and does he find anyone that understands? No, he does not. And so there we'll get into the argument of total depravity as we go along. So let's go to the verse by verse and see what we can find out. At the beginning, we can see that this is a psalm that's been given to the choir master. This is to be sung during a worship service. It's written by David. Now in Psalm 53, we have a, some, a little more information there. It has to the choir master according to Mahala. I guess that's how you pronounce it. But this word translates as the word sickness. And so the title of this psalm is sickness. The sickness of a heart that refuses to acknowledge God, or really a heart that just says this, no, no, the heart that says no to God is a sickness. Now the next one is, uh, it says, a maskel of David. Now that word means didactic. And of course, I don't have to explain that, right? Didactic. Everyone knows. No. Okay. Well, let me explain it. Didactic just simply means this is a psalm that's designed to teach you something. And so this is a psalm that's doctoral. It is a, uh, you know, it teaches you. And so it, we're going to be learning about atheism, about total depravity, and about how God is going to be our safety. So let's go to verse number one. We're there at, um, to the choir master of David. And then we are beginning to that one verse where it says, The fool now speaks to God. So we read this, The fool says in his heart. Now please notice that he's not saying, The fool has said in his mind, or he has reasoned his way to the conclusion. No, there goes right down to the bottom of where he feels, and where he loves, and where he has his affections. This is where he says in his heart, There is no God. And then there is a description of who these people are. They are corrupt. They do abominable, uh, uh, abominable things, things and deeds. And there is none. Uh, there is none who does good. Those three things. So let's take a look at the idea of who this fool is and what this word fool means. Because many times, if you want to insult somebody, you call them a fool. And sometimes, uh, even the word fool has been used in a variety of ways. Even in the Middle Ages, uh, the kings of Europe would have somebody that would, that would be allowed to say anything to him. He was called the king's fool. And since he had that title, he really wasn't a foolish person. He could actually say something to the king that no one else could say. 
He would stay in jest. He would be that one voice that could give clarity without being punished. And so since he was the king's fool, he could actually say something that no one else was allowed to say. But this is not the case the way we are here, right? Usually the word fool is designed to insult someone. But this word does not mean, simply mean a fool to insult. It, it's a word that has a meaning more like this. It is a wicked person. It's an impious person. It's a vile person. But it can also mean a simple person, a person who is of slow understanding. Now, with all these kind of different def you know, definitions, let's take a look at what the fool is saying in his heart and mind. We may say, well, he's a man that cannot reason that there is a God who exists. He must be a slow person. That's not always the case. He is slow to come to the right conclusion because his heart is sinful and he hates God. And when, a God, uh, and when God is hated, and then, then the heart simply says to the mind, find another way. Go to another place. I say no to God, and therefore the reasoning power, I want you to find a way that there is no God. Now Spurgeon said it so, so cleverly. He, says, he, he said this, when the master is blind, what will the servants do? You understand what that means? When the master is blind, what will the servants do? He is implying this, that the heart is the master and the mind is the servant. And if the heart is blind, what will your mind do? Where will your thoughts go? If your heart cannot see that there is a good God and that he is a just God and that your heart says, I will not have this God. As a matter of fact, when I think about God, the first thing I want to say is no. And so the reasoning powers I have serve the master. And then everything that I say, oh, I'm a pretty smart guy. I don't want this to be true. And so I'll look for evidence to the contrary. And so that's what the world has done. The world starts off with the heart that says, no God. And that's what they find. And that is what the scriptures here says is a fool. This is the kind of person that is a practical atheist. Now, he may come to the conclusion that there is no God, but it's from the suppression of the facts. It's from a bias toward a goal or toward an achievement that there is no God to give an account to. So everyone that understands that there is a God must grapple with the fact that they must face him and they must be judged by him. So, this phrase, there is no God, if you have a King James Version, you'll notice that uh, there is, is italic, which means it actually says, the fool has said in his heart, no God. Now, that means that he believes that there is no God, but of course, his heart wants no God. That's exactly what we have. So, there is also a threefold description of what this fool is. Fools are corrupt, fools do abominable deeds, and there is none who does good. Now, how does this, what is the scope of this? Well, what the, what the psalm is telling us is that, first of all, let's take a look at the fool. He's the one that says no to God and no about God. They, this is what they are. What are they? Well, they're corrupt. What do they do? They do evil things. 
And which ones are they? They are the fools. Which one of the fools? All of the fools. Now you see how this is kind of confined to the idea that who is the fool? Those who say no to God. How many of them are there? All the fools are like that. But then we'll say in the next section, in the next verse, this is going to be expanded to, well, is it just the fools that are, you know, atheists or the atheists, they're the only ones? No, he's going to be spread out to even more than that. So let's go on to the next verse, which contains verses 2 and 3. We'll read them together. The Lord, and notice it's capital L-O-R-D in this verse, that means Jehovah, Yahweh. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after him. Now there's an image in your mind, isn't it? As though the Lord would need to, you know, lean over his throne to look down upon the people. Isn't that an image to, to get in your heart and mind? That he should do, though, do so in order to just see and to see if he can find. And yet this is what he finds. They have all turned aside. Now that implies that they were, they were supposed to be there looking at him. But instead of looking at him face to face and eye to eye, instead of being at the foot, you know, at the, uh, you know, at the foot of the mountain of Mount Sinai, waiting for God to speak, instead of that, they've just turned aside. They said, no, that's all, no, and they turn aside. They have become corrupt. Now this word corrupt is a little bit different than what we would use today. We would look at the officials in our government, and uh, if they do not do what they're supposed to do, if they, if they get money for, um, you know, for passing illegal laws or whatever the case may be, we would say, well, we have a corrupt government, we have a corrupt society, and that type of thing. But this is not that kind of corruption. This is the kind of corruption you'll see in a grave. It's when a body decays. It's when a body stinks and becomes corrupt in that way. And so they've all become corrupt. They are spiritually stinking. They are spiritually dead. There is none who does good. Not even one. Now this is where we would take a look at the way the Apostle Paul went to Romans. And in Romans chapter 3, he quotes the first three verses in this psalm. But you'll notice that he does not include the first phrase where the Lord looked down or God looks down. He begins after that. Why? Because he's telling, he's addressing the question of this. Is it beneficial to be a Jew? Or is it, you know, is it detrimental to be a, you know, a Gentile? He says, no, no. They're all together. Whether they are covenant people or whether they are just people that are looking for God. All of them together have become unprofitable. There is none that do good. And so what does that mean? Every son of Adam is a fool. Why? Because their heart says no to God. And so since this is a song that's to be sung in the congregation of the righteous, we are reminded all the time that there is something within us, there's something in our hearts that's foolish. There's something within us that wants to say no to God. We are all liable to this. There is many times you'll find that the Lord's people, they, 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 they don't want to be practical atheists, but every once in a while they find themselves living as if there is no God. And that's a problem. And that's a sad thing. And that is something that we need to be reminded of all the time. We can catch ourselves and say, why am I doing this? Why am I living this way? I'm living as if there is no God. I'm living like a fool. 
I'm living as though my heart wakes up in the morning and just simply says no to God so that I can say yes to everything else. So the primary description of the fool is that he begins by saying no. No. A man's thoughts are servants to his desires. We need to get that straight. A man's thoughts are a servant to his heart. What a man will do in his heart as a desire, that's what his mind is going to think about. Remember, what will the servants do when their master is blind? The words of Spurgeon, but still very good words. What will we do? The psalmist wants us to understand that the scope is not just the world, but the scope also includes God's people. We are many times, in a practical way, foolish. He says he looked down from heaven. Doesn't this remind you of the time when he saw the people at, in the plains where they gathered together and tried to build a tower? They called it the Tower of Babel because of the languages being confused. Reminds me of a group of people that thought they were so wise that they could pull them up, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And why? To circumvent the seraphims or the cherubs that were in the Garden of Eden saying, you will not come to God this way. And man by his own foolishness goes to God on his own terms, builds his own tower, does what he wants. Very much like the time in the flood where God looked down and the scripture tells us that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts, of his hearts, were evil continually. The Lord looked down and to see if there was any that understood. There's no doubt in my mind that the Lord is always looking down. He always sees. He can see everything. And what is he looking for? Are there any who understand? Is there any that seeks after God? And of course, the rhetorical answer is the same answer that the fool says to God. The fool says, no. And what does the Lord do? Is there any that understands? No. Is there any that seek after God? No. The Lord finds that they have all turned aside. They have all become corrupt in that they have decayed. Their lives are stinking. There's none that does good. All the sons of Adam. This is the perfect psalm to use a defense in order to teach total depravity. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. He used these <coughs> verses. So we can see the Apostle Paul using these verses are very effective in teaching how sinners are sinners. In Romans 10, um, Romans 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, let me read them to you. It says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. But notice how he left out, the Lord looked down and God looked down. That's because <laughs> the God of the covenant people and the God of everyone else. The Lord looked down upon all of us. There is none righteous. No one understands. No one seeks after God. They've all become worthless. Not even one. Mm -hmm. Not one. I don't know what else to say other than people do not understand 
the depth of their problem when it comes to the enslavement of sin. And the strength of the chains of our sin can be measured and felt by the affections of the heart. Just consider the word affection. You know, when I was younger, I, I'm, I really wasn't that good in English. I'm really not that, I'm not very good at English now. I many times misuse words, misuse nouns and verbs and pronouns and all that type of thing. And I've often misused the word affection or affect and effect. You know, one's a noun, one's a verb. But affection, the affection of the heart, has a great effect upon what you do. The affection of the heart has a great effect on what you do. If you want to know what people love, see what they do. See what they collect. See what they spend their time on. See what enthralls them. See what excites them. See what makes them cry. See what gives them pain. That is the power of sin. When your heart makes your mind reason, there's got to be a way to get out from underneath of God. There's got to be a way to prove that there is no God. I can remember going to a psychology class in Akron, Ohio, when I was a very young man, and that professor stood up and he said, the Bible has been the monkey on the back of humanity for centuries, and, and he was the one that's going to release us from that. I was so angry. I really showed him. I sat in the wrong chair every day, and I was counted absent, and he never forgot it, right? He never even knew. Sometimes the effect of what we think are really is going to happen is like, oh, the, oh, the, you know, the unreasonableness of myself. But you, can you see how the affections of the heart, that is the strength of change. And people say, well, that's not a strong chain. I think a real chain is stronger than that. I'd hate to be bound up by a real chain. Now that's strength. No, it isn't. Those things affect only the body. We're talking about the hearts and mind, the right. eternal things, the things that go on after this body drops into the dust. We must nurture the heart because out of the heart comes the issues of life. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, this is what God wants from us. He wants our hearts. He wants the affections. He wants these things for Him. And yet when He looks into us, He looks down, and what does He see? No. No, there is no God. And if God wants me to do something, no, I won't. I want you to be pleased with justice. I want you to seek after righteousness. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. No, I have other things. I want. I don't want to waste my life. I want to have the life that's happy. I want to, you know, I want, I got a bucket list I've got to live through. I can't not see that and do this and buy that and do these things. No, no, no. I don't have time for God. They say no. And what does God say in the next verse? Let's go to verses 4, 5, and 6. This is the verse that tells us the way of the fool. The way of the fool. Let me read the verses to you, and then we'll get into it. Have they no knowledge? Now, I'd like to leave out the next phrase, and I'll, leave, I'll read it like this. Have they no knowledge? Do they will, they will they not call upon the Lord? And now let me read it the way it's written. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as though they were bread, and do not call upon the Lord? There, there they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Now, I, you know, now in Psalm 53, it's a little bit different right there. 
I would like to kind of tell you what Psalm 53 says. There they are in great terror when there is nothing to be afraid of. That's my paraphrase. They're in great terror with nothing to be afraid of. And here it replaces it with the phrase, but God is with the generation of the righteous. And so there's a slight difference. This is to Jehovah's people here. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Now this is a very simple statement that means something like this. You would like to have the righteous or those that believe in God to be ashamed of their rest. In other words, the rest in Christ, the atoning work of Christ, the doctrines that we believe in, the promises of God. The world would want us to be ashamed of that. And why? Because they find strength when we do not find strength in God. When we deny God, then they are boasted in their own mind. I told you I was right. I was right all along. Look at these Christians. They're ashamed of it. And I made a good choice. No. That's what they say. So, verse number four. Will they ever learn? That's basically what's being said. God is asking the rhetorical question. Will they ever learn? And what's the answer? The same answer that they are giving to God. No. No, they won't. Well, that's awfully bleak, don't you think? Without the grace of God, it is bleak. Truly. We must understand that if God did not seek us, we would never seek him back. Right. We love him because he first loved us. Right. If we truly had an understanding of what the human heart is all about, it is when God changes us. It is the new birth. How can anyone receive the love of God without the new birth, without a new heart, without a new affection? Mm -hmm. And so with the heart needing to have a new affection, then we must say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for changing me. Will they ever call upon the Lord? The answer is no. But have they? Yes. Who should we ask about that? Well, ask Nicodemus. Did he know? Well, the Lord said, you mean you're a master of Israel and you don't know these things? That a man must have a new heart? That a man, a man must have a heart that is born with a new affection? He must have a heart that's completely different because every single one of the sons of Adam, all of them, they've gone aside. They're all wicked. There's none that does good. There's not even one that does good. The affections of their heart, the very heart that does the mind, that controls the mind, says no to God and that there is no God. So the rhetorical answer is always no. Let's go to verse number five. <clears throat> there they are in great terror, for God is their generation. And so, why are the wicked, why are the unbelieving, why is the atheist so afraid? There are many people that I've met that are just simply fearful people. And you may say, well, that's kind of a sad condition. It's really not a sin. Yes, it is a sin. It is a sin to be a person that lives nothing but fear. And why? because they do not want to rest in God. They are afraid of everything else, but they will not rest in God. They're afraid of losing their life, that if they give up their life to God, they're going to lose their life. But they're afraid of everything. They're afraid of death. I can remember people telling me, oh, please, don't ever mention death around children, you know, because they, they should be happy. Well, you can't, you can't control when people die. Sometimes children go to funerals. Sometimes you have to talk about that. 
I can still remember when my children first understood the concept of death. You can see the terror in their eyes that one day they would be dead. But I'm telling you, the gospel is something that relieves all fear. Yes. But, the, but the unbelieving, those that live by the rule of saying no to God, they are a fearful people, full of fear. They're full of fear when there's nothing to be afraid of. But there will be a time when they should truly be afraid, truly be afraid. They should anticipate that time and go to the Lord. But even now, as during the, during, during the happiest times that they should have, because this life is the only time they have, yet they're still afraid. Sometimes they, they're afraid when other people are not. When they see Christians that live their life without fear, that bothers them. It truly does. And when they're able to destroy the Christian's peace, then somehow that gives them peace. That's the saddest story I've ever heard. But it is very true. <clears throat> in Psalm 53, let me read what that says. There they are in great terror, where there, where there is no terror. It is a sad thing to see the world live this way. Verse number 6. You, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. How many times has the world mocked Christianity, made fun of Christ, made fun of the cross of Christ? They mock God at every chance they have, and yet it is our safety. How many times has those who say, I believe that the the, the idea of God is the monkey on the back of humanity, and they do their very best. The doctrines of this world, the famous people that try to prove that there is no God, they do their very best at mocking the safety of Christians. And when they destroy it, they feel as though they've accomplished something of their own rest. It makes them feel safe or safer when the Christian is in terror. That is one of the saddest things about those who have succumbed to theoretical atheism, to those who have had their minds convinced from their hearts that they believe that there is no God. Mm. Let's go to the last verse, and this verse is this, the calm hope of deliverance. Now, this, these words are voiced from a, from a position where we say, would, would talk like this, oh, wouldn't it be great and wouldn't it be good if God would take his people that are in captivity and bring them back to Jerusalem where they can be received in joy and Mount Zion uh, would have their deliverer there and all of us be set free from this bondage of Babylon. Um, that might be true the way it's said, but for us, I would like to say it this way. We who live in this world under the bondage of this flesh and in this world, wouldn't it be great when God comes from his Jerusalem, from heaven, and he takes us and puts us back and in his presence and with a new body. Isn't it going to be great when we are delivered from the bondage of this world? It's going to be a tremendous type of glory. Christ is going to fetch us out of this world. And he is going to uh, give us the type of rest and happiness because we are going to inherit all things in Christ. And I say, let all of God's people rejoice at this. There's nothing greater than the peaceful rest that we will have in that day. 
Now, at that day, with the wicked, they should seriously consider that day, because that is the day to be afraid of. Today, they're afraid of their own shadows, but then there'll be the substance. That's what they should fear. There is only one practical application I would like to uh, address about this, this, this psalm, even though there could be many. But I want to expand a little bit about the fear of the atheist, why the atheist is so afraid. I have um, I've read several commentaries on this, and, and Spurgeon had an excellent illustration. And I thought it was very good in that it gave insight. And to the best of my knowledge, the illustration I'm about to tell you is a true story. Uh, there is a man that, um, by the name of Joseph Addison, and he lived in the 17th century. He's an old, you know, way back in the time when he was born in 1600s, died in the 1700s. But he was a poet, and he was a playwright. He wasn't, he wasn't a Christian that I would say is a notable Christian, but I would say that he was a, he was a Christian. But I wouldn't say that he was like a famous theologian or anything like that. But he was just a man of the arts. And he was on a ship one time, and he noticed that there was another passenger who was very vocal in his idea about God and that he, and that he didn't believe that there was such a thing as God. He became very vocal about it. As a matter of fact, on, on this ship, he made, it, he made it so well known that everyone could hear him. It's kind of like, I'm not going to be satisfied until everyone hears my opinion about this. Well, it just so happens that as the ship sailed, they ran into a gale, a very severe storm. And of course, when you're in a severe storm, if you're a, if you're a person that's been on a ship of this type many times, maybe the crew, I, I would take a look at, if the crew is afraid, I'd be afraid. But if the crew is like, don't worry, I, we got this, but it looks like they're heaving and, and everything, if the crew's not afraid, I wouldn't either. I wouldn't be afraid either. But it turned out that this one man was definitely afraid. He became so fearful that he started to cry out to God. And he approached the chaplain of the ship and started to confess that he had, uh, he had said so many awful things about God and he's so afraid about meeting God now that he is so, you know, he, he's just, he was completely undone. And before he got talking, got done talking with the chaplain, uh, the ship came out of the storm. He immediately said, please don't tell anybody I said this. Please don't tell anybody that I confessed that I was afraid and that there is a God. Mm. But the word had gotten out. Mm. In fact, the whole crew became aware of it. And uh, everyone on board. And they, uh, they kind of mocked him a little bit. But he even doubled down and said, there is no God. Now, I know that sounds awful, isn't it? I guess I should end right there with the illustration, but the illustration doesn't end there. Mm. What happened is this guy, this guy goes, goes on shore. A few days later, he meets one of the passengers. He says, oh, I remember you. You were that guy that was so afraid after saying there's no God. And he mocked him. And the guy was so insulted that he challenged him to a duel. And so they took their swords and they, and they battled. And this man was run through with a sword. And he started to cry out to God. Because he was afraid. He was afraid of dying and meeting God. And it turned out that the wound was not fatal. And as he recovered, he said, I don't know what I was saying. There is no God. 
Now you may say, well, I hope this, this illustration ends with this man repenting. Mm. It doesn't. Mm. This man went on to write books about how there is no God. He became a famous author about being an atheist and about how there is no God. Let me tell you, Puritans would put it this way. Only on earth will there be atheists. There are no atheists in hell. Mm. And as men approach God, even the shadow of death is going to scare the daylights out of them. But when they see the substance of death come, they, their fear, fear will have no bottom. Spurgeon puts it this way, their hell has no bottom. The fear of the atheist is a real thing. You're going to find that most bullies, most bullies are cowards. And so are atheists. They are the bullies of this world. They want to bully the Christians. I, they are the fearful. They are the ones that are afraid. I want to read two passages. Well, actually one passage, just two different versions. In Revelation chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 8. This is the King James Version. But the fearful. I'm going to lead it, read a list of sins here. But notice what it begins with. But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and liars, shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I'm going to read the ESV version, and notice the word that's been exchanged. But as for the cowardly, do you see? It is the same. Those that are filled with fear are cowards. Now, I'm not saying, oh, you have to be brave to be a good Christian. I'm not saying that. All of us, we have fears. Of course we have fears. But for those people, it works like this. Those of us who know that we should fear God can live life without fear. But those that do not fear God live life like a coward. That's the way it works. That's the way it is. The fearful and the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, sexual immorality, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, they shall have their portion in the lake of fire. Let us not be like the cowards of this world. I have pity on them, pray for them, be kind to them, love them. Surely we can love the, the, these people because we're, there's a reminder of them within us. There is a reminder of who they are within us. There's always that little place inside of our heart that says no to God. And if that no was ever to take over, it would tell your mind to say no to God and that there is no God. So let's remember these things. Let's not be like the bully. In conclusion, when this psalm starts to teach those who sing it and to those who listen to it, that's us, its first lesson is to us both the redeemed and the unbelieving, that we all have hearts that say no to God. Everyone is a fool in their heart unless grace changes them. And so let's be, let's be people of grace. Let's know where our help comes from. Let's be truly affectionate and abide in our love to God. That is the only way out of this. There will be those always in our lives who will remain atheists, but remember what the Puritans say. There are only atheists in this life. There will be no atheists in hell. 
And even though this psalm teaches that atheists are fools, the teaching is primarily directed to usward in a believing congregation of believers. Mm. Remember to say no to the part of your heart that says no. Mm -hmm. mm. That's what we need. Until we receive our new bodies, we are still in this temporary building we call the flesh. And we will have a small remnant and a trace of that foolish heart within us. And until the Lord calls us home, we will need to live a life of daily repentance, suppressing the part of us that wants to live like God doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of us that wants to be that practical atheist. Mm -hmm. May God provide his daily grace to nurture the seed of the word of God mm -hmm. that lives within us now. May we all be conformed to the image of Christ our Amen. Savior. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we ask now that you would teach your people your word. Holy Spirit, teach us now that God is good. He is so great and so, so kind and affectionate to us. May we be conformed to the image of our lovely Savior. May we hunger and thirst after your righteousness. And may we never say no to you. Give us this grace, we pray in the Lord's name. Amen.